You've heard it before. Artificial intelligence will transform the military. Autonomous drone swarms will keep uniforms out of harm's way. China has a military AI program. We need one, too. My next guest says not so fast. Army First Lieutenant Michael Ferguson has combat experience in Iraq and Afghanistan and is a former Army Ranger instructor. He writes regularly about national security, and he joins me now. Lieutenant Ferguson, good to have you on. Thanks for having me on. What is your thesis about artificial intelligence, that it's not ready yet, that it will never be ready, or what do you think? Yeah, so I think it's it's maybe more of a combination of both. So uh, this is a really important discussion, um, and I think we need to have it because so far it's been rather one-sided. And by that I mean we hear a lot about um, what AI might do from a technical perspective, as far as technical experts commenting on the potential for what AI might do. But we don't often hear from those who actually be applying that technology on the battlefield. Um, So this leads to really an incredibly simplistic view of the complexity of ground war. And by that I mean if you talk um, to to, to some of these uh, people and get their perspectives, some actually believe that if you can strap a gun to a robot and get it to walk upstairs, that it can then do everything a human being would do in a ground war, such as navigate alleyways and farmlands, communicate and coordinate ground movement with other elements, clear multi-story buildings, with combatants and non-combatants, and then move to other targets and do this for days on end, sustaining and maintaining itself in the rain, underground, etc. And it's pie-in-the-sky kind of stuff, and I think we're really uh, getting ahead of ourselves, and it could be detrimental to how we're training up that next generation of warfighters. So that's one of the reasons I've been writing these articles for National Interest and the Washington Examiner, just to try and give another perspective from someone who's been there, um, because it's not going to be the engineers or developers who are actually employing these technologies in the next land war. It's going to be young soldiers, sailors, airmen, and marines, and we should really hear what they have to say considering the amount of combat experience they have right now. But you do have senior officers that are traipsing out to Silicon Valley and engaging in all of this uh, back and forth with the high-tech industry, and certainly they must know what goes on on the battlefield too, though, don't they? Uh, Well, yes, absolutely. And I think there's definitely a place um, for AI, and there's going to be. it's going to augment but not replace humans in war. And by that, I pretty much identify with you know Jeff Becker from the Pentagon's Deep Future study, um, that even the senior leaders who, as you say, are going out um, you know, and, and rubbing shoulders with Silicon Valley are doing so to explore those possibilities because it's obviously something we're in competition right now with uh, competitor nations, like you say, such as China and Russia. It's something we need to explore. But what I'm looking at is more of the long-term risk of an overinvestment. And kind of the thesis of my points that I've made in these various pieces I'm discussing is don't often get this right as far as the prediction of what a future war is going to look like. And uh, we see almost a unanimous consensus of what future war is going to be. And it kind of harkens back, you know, to, to, to looking at, you know, when Gatling and Maxim invented the machine guns and every thought, everyone thought it was going to end war. Or, you know, prior to uh, the Korean War, when uh, Army Ranger Colonel Ralph Puckett was told that the next war would be fought with missiles, so infantry forces were obsolete. Obviously, he was charging the trenches in Korea you know, a year later, and there was no nuclear war. And now you hear the same argument, well, we have nuclear um, competitors, so there's not going to be another ground war. But I just think that each of these misconceptions was really a product of the current environment. It was basically derived from an obsession with the technology of the day and the way in which that technology was supposed to permanently alter the conduct of war. What if we're getting it wrong? And you also stress the uh, element of human interaction and establishment, say, of trust among locals in places like Iraq and Afghanistan. You Mm -hmm. had personal experience there. Tell us about that. Yeah, so um, I think... uh, in addition to what I wrote, a good look back as far as Alexander the Great. I mean, he understood in 4th century B.C. that conquest could be achieved through military intimidation and military means. 
but ruling or governing, and particularly governing over a conquered people, required you know vast reservoirs of human investment and inspiration throughout the process of that war. And if you don't have those elements in place, you're going to basically encounter those same human conditions that led to war in the first place. So the first thing we need to recognize is that machines don't make policy. They don't create the conditions that lead to war. They don't determine the human conditions that must be met to end war. So their actions alone can't win wars or end wars. Only human influence will be able to do that. And it's that trust on the ground that not only allows you to win a war, but allows you to win the peace, which at times can even be harder. We're speaking with Army First Lieutenant Michael Ferguson, and in your active duty situations, actually you're speaking from overseas right now, but in Afghanistan, Iraq region, tell us what you encountered and what you might have wanted had some sort of artificial augmentation of intelligence been available. Well, sure, yeah. Obviously, I was um, I was on the ground during the Battle of Ramadi in 2006 and uh, basically um, helped uh, lead the way into the Ambar awakening um, against uh, al-Qaeda in Iraq that uh, occurred in 2007. Um, and if, if you look at some of the the, the greatest victories of, of any war, if we can even look in the most recent wars, like my experiences in Iraq, um, the most significant outcomes of that war were in no way related to any kind of nascent or emerging technology or any kind of equipment. It was related to how um, those soldiers interacted on the ground and how they were able to influence and inspire people um, to fight for a common cause, unite under a common cause, persevere through adversity. And those were really... Um, if we can identify a great story um, that came out of there, that, that was one of them, um, was the bond that was created prior to and during the, the Ambar Awakening. And when you're fighting house to house, there's not really a whole lot that technology can do for you. Um, so we encountered very few um, uh, problems that you know soldiers centuries ago would find wildly unfamiliar on the ground fighting house to house in Ramadi. And I'm, I'm sure anyone who fought in Fallujah prior to that could attest to that. Um, so it's, it's, it's close quarters. It's, it's rocky ground. You're moving through farm terrain that's uneven, jumping over irrigation canals, climbing over walls, going up and down short spiral stairways that you may not be able to squeeze through if you were a machine. Um, and then you're doing that for days on end. You're needing to sustain yourself uh, with food and also uh, needing to, to you know, uh, um, work out um, your logistical um, resupply plans and things like that. So I can't really um, say that off the top of my head there would be some kind of technology that I really could have used that would have been decisive in that kind of house-to-house urban fighting. And if we look at a lot of the projections of what that next war is going to be like, going all the way back to you know David Kilcullen talking about out of the mountains, and now we're talking a lot about megacity warfare, asymmetrical warfare group there out of the Army has been talking a lot about subterranean warfare. How much more challenging um, is it going to be to employ this technology, but not only employ it, but to sustain it and maintain it? In those kind of environments. It seems like a lot of military leadership is of the understanding or the expectation that the military is never going to be as large as it was in terms of manpower, and therefore mm-hmm. they're seeking greater lethality in the manpower they do have. Yeah. Uh, but then there's another school of thought that says, you know, there's a certain quality in quantity. And so maybe, you know, more soldiers that are more conventionally equipped may be just a better idea than trying to invent technologies to make fewer numbers more lethal. Does AI fit into that piece somehow? Yeah, it, it could. Um, but the, the, the kind of the, the, the two parts of the argument I'm making is, is that obviously the first part I've kind of explained is that war's nature is human, and you can't really get away from that. So the solutions to war I kind of identify with Lieutenant General McMaster in, in that aspect is that war derives from you know human disagreements, human issues. So the solution is also going to be human. But the second part of it is that the enemy gets a vote. 
Um, so a lot of what we're talking about right now and the way we're perceiving war is through a counterinsurgency prism, a foreign internal defense prism. But if we're talking about a peer-on-peer war, which is what we're talking about, which is what the 2018 National Defense Strategy is talking about, we're talking about going up against an adversary who has either similar technology or technology capable of nullifying our technological advantage. Um, so the angle I'm coming from as, as, as a ground fighter for the majority of my career um, is we should train for the, the worst possible scenario. And we hear a lot of our senior leaders touching on that. It may not be reaching out as far as it should. Um, but talking about operating in a degraded environment, and what that means is kind of taking these technological crutches away from our forces when they train. And we're, we're, we're doing that um, in, in the U.S., we're doing it in Europe, and it's something that um, senior leaders out of the U.S. Air Force Space Command are pushing because they realize how susceptible we are to having these things taken away from us. And you really don't need to you know, look any further than the Air University's recent Electromagnetic Defense Tax Task Force report on uh, EMP vulnerability. Um, which was which was quite shocking if you've read that, and um, it basically shows that we could have a lot of these things that we're relying on to be decisive in future wars stripped away from us almost instantaneously, and then what we're left with is what we've had in the past, essentially. You're left with the gray matter underneath your helmet. Yes, sir. Michael Ferguson is an Army First Lieutenant. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom, having me. Find a link to a recent article and to this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at iTunes or Podcast One. Cough and cold season is here. Introducing Ricola Max Throat Care, Ricola's most powerful drop yet. It's the best of Swiss nature wrapped around a powerful liquid menthol center for maximum relief from your worst cough and sore throat. Maximum nature for maximum relief. Try the new Ricola Max now, available in the cold and cough aisle. It's in our nature.